0: And we're live. It is Friday, November 12th, 2021, the day after Armistice Day. And Steve Bannon has been indicted for contempt of Congress. One day after I wrote an article explaining why it was taking so long to indict him, so my thanks to the Justice Department for holding off until after that article was published, because it would have really sucked <laughs> to have the article, like, be about to be published, and now then the indictment body. happened. This looks like it's there's causation, and that's the way I like it, the appearance of impact. Um, uh, we are not going to talk about the Steve Bannon indictment today because we have something much cooler to talk about. We are joined by none other than my uncle, John Turk, known hey, in the family welcome, everybody. as Uncle Johnny. Um, <laughs> uh, John uh, is the author of a truly amazing uh, new book. Uh, oh,
1: really? is that what um, it's this is the Tracking Lions book?
0: Yes. Uh, and, uh, I want to tell you a story about this book, um, uh, uh, which is an unflattering story to me. Um, so it was shortly after Donald Trump was elected and, um, uh, I was engaged in all the craziness that, uh, some of which has since become public, some of which has not. And, um, I get an email from my Uncle John, who says he's uh, working on a a book that's more political for him. And I thought, and he wanted me to read the proposal. And I thought to myself, okay, John is like super cool, and I adore him, and we're, we're close. And uh, if he was going to write a book about, you know, crossing the Pacific in a kayak, well, actually, he already did that. If he was going to write a book about, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know cold oceans, oh, he already did that. Or being healed by a shaman, a 106-year-old shaman in Siberia, well, he already did that. All of that shit, I'm like, okay, I'm really excited about this. But John writing about politics just seemed like... Like a category error, and so I, I have to admit, I kind of dreaded reading this proposal, and I well, finally the read it. did can
1: you say? It was about lions.
0: <laughs> well, it wasn't then about lions.
1: No, it wasn't. Okay. So
0: I start reading this proposal, and I get like five pages into it, and I'm like, "Wow, I'm wrong. This is really good and really interesting, and it's really about." the tectonic plates of politics in a way that I've never thought about. And in the years since, the word tribalism has become like a kind of buzzword of politics. And this is actually a uh, a project about tribalism. So I, by the time I get to the end of this proposal, I write John a super enthusiastic uh, note about this idea, and I was totally pumped by it. And I'm completely delighted that the book uh, five years later now actually exists, has been published in somewhat of a different form than originally uh, proposed. So we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have tracking lions. Uh, And um, we also have
1: a moment for the last time John Turk was on the show. We were so so. So it was like the third or fourth show, and you were just on audio.
0: Yeah, it was just and you so were I just a phone call.
1: Of you in my head, in like this an, is what
0: John Turk actually looks like.
1: like in a, so like I a want a unabomb like cabin in like, the, in, like in Montana, <laughs> and like you could only you only have like a landline. Like that's kind of what I imagine.
0: So I want to start with the question: What does Donald Trump? American political tribalism have to do with counting lions in Kenya?
2: Well, that's a long story, okay? So we start out, um, I'm, I'm in Kenya, and it's my third day there, and all of a sudden they asked me, a, a lion kills a cow in the local village, and they asked me to track the lion. What's going to happen if we find the lion? Somehow, because I'm working ostensibly sensibly with the Lion Conservation Project, we're supposed to convince this lion that it's a bad lion. It shouldn't eat cows. It's supposed to eat zebras. Have you ever tried to train a house cat not to kill sparrows? Anyway, that's uh, a little aside the point. So we're tracking a lion, and they hand me a club, a wooden club. And they say, if you're going to, if this lion comes out of the bushes and starts running at you, when it gets uh, arm's length away and it's just about to eat you, you're supposed to neutralize the lion with this club, Rungu. Neutralize
1: okay. is that like a technical term well, like kill it, <laughs> kill it kill it
2: <laughs> yeah. supposed to kill the lion and so they give me a lesson i when i grew up in kindergarten they never taught me how to kill a lion with a club i never learned it in high school or graduate school or anything they give me a lesson on how to kill a lion with a club and that was kind of funny you know i was amused by the whole thing and then i'm out there and we're tracking this lion and uh, we're, we're getting really close, the lion's really close. And all of a sudden I get really angry at these people to put me out there in this risky situation with only a club. And and then I realized for my long life as an adventure that anger isn't going to do me any good. Anger is, is my enemy. I have to embrace this situation. I have to be alert. I have to be here. I have to be present. I have to be totally in tune with nature. And then this glorious feeling comes about me. I'm, I'm in a wonderful situation. I'm also right near the Olduvai Gorge where humanity evolved. And I asked myself the question, how did humans survive on the savanna? We're slower than a lion. We have weak teeth and no claws. And we're weaker than a chimpanzee. We can't smell as well as a hyena. How did we survive? And the answer is that we almost didn't. We almost became extinct. About 70,000 years ago, the human species was on the downslide population-wise towards extinction. 2,000 people left on the planet, that's it. And we're headed, headed out of here. Bad evolutionary experiment. And then all of a sudden, the population exploded. So we ask, what was it? that gave our species the impetus to all of a sudden increase our population, right? So, the normal explanation that you would think people would come up with was that we invented tools, more sophisticated than the Rungu, a bow and arrow, throwing, throwing spears, at atlatls, all that stuff. But that's not what happened. That's not what was in the archeological record. What happened was that around 70,000 years ago, we started creating art. And once we started creating art, symbolic art, thinking about things that don't exist, our population exploded. And we started populating the earth and moving out of Africa and going everywhere. So that's an archeological fact. So the question is, how did art, music, dance, create this power to survive? And tools came later. Tools were a, a consequence of art. Not, it's not that we invented tools and then we had the leisure to create art. That's not what happened. So the answer seems to be that human beings, we became tribal. We use the word that Ben just used, tribalism. We loved each other. We gained strength. We traded ideas around the campfire. We had each other's back. We protected each other and so on. And we had the power to survive. What does this have to do with Donald Trump? That was your question. I seem to have gone off track, but I have not. So then let's jump now to from 70,000 years ago to 10,000 years ago, when we moved to cities, agriculture, cities, large concentrations of people, you have large concentrations of people You need some sort of control. You need somebody managing the system. Uh, The little tribal thing where everybody gets together and holds hands and decides how to do it doesn't work. So you have a hierarchy. You have leaders. Leaders can be priests or political leaders or whatever. And they become the storytellers. So, you go from the tribal storyteller bringing the stories together, little kids bouncing on their mother's knees and listening to the old man telling stories, now to the leader, the priest, the politician telling a stories. And very soon the politicians learn to tweak the stories to concentrate the power to them. And that's the trajectory that we're dealing with. And that's what my book deals with. In, in my situation, the narrative goes from tracking the lion, Paleolithic John, out with the trap, track, tracker Deepa, knowing that we have to be our own little tribe. And then, as my time in Kenya goes on, there's all this kinds of political turmoil and there are guys out there now who want to kidnap me, cut off my head on Facebook, and post it, uh, a nice video on Facebook. Well, that's a little exaggeration. I don't know exactly what they wanted to do, but all of a sudden, later in my journey, later in the book, I'm tracking lions, and now everybody that I'm with has an AK-47, and We come across a lion track and we don't follow the lion track because we're on the warpath and now Mm. I'm going through the jungle, not the jungle, the Savannah on the warpath with AK-47s and I have lived the 70,000 years of evolution from the tribal togetherness, the beauty of tribalism to the situation where... If somebody wants to kill me, they don't know me, man. I don't know anybody any money. I haven't slept with anybody's uh, wife or daughter. They want to kill me because they have a story in their head about me. And, you know, it's a simple jump to stop this deal and make America great again. I mean, these are just stories. And so, Yeah, I don't know what the conclusion is. Well, I do know what the conclusion is, but let's go on with your questions, Ben. Uh, Kate, do you want to pick up?
1: Yeah. There is so much that you have just described that has purchased in, like, various aspects of kind of some of the, like, the academic writing and the anthropological writings that I've read. Like, I don't know if you know this, it's because I haven't read your book, and I don't know what your training is, but, like, the, the story that you're telling of kind of the power and the rebirth of oral history and the power of it in creating tribalism is like almost like a stud um, kind of point. I don't know if you know him, he was like a writer and like an oral, like a person who talked a lot about oral history and like the power of oral history to kind of create a lot of these stories um, in local communities in particular, and the power of art and jazz and like dance and like metaphor, it's like a really great kind of like, uh, it's a really, really like it's a, a your, your point and your illustration is like really geniusly entail with that. Um, and kind of like, I think that you're completely correct. And the other thing that I would just say is like, I'm just like very moved by the story of kind of the amplification. You start with a stick and it goes to a gun. And that is like the story of an amplified tribe. Like that is like a tribe that like the amplification of the impact is so much greater from clubbing a lion to like wiping out an entire, um, what is it that the, what is the term for a group of pride, a pride of lions,
2: right? Like
1: Right. That you have like an AK 47, you can write about a whole tribe in a second from a distance. Um, and like, I mean, I understand that you, your points about politics are, are there, but I also just kind of wanted to point out kind of those And the, anthropologically, like those are some really interesting metaphors too. Like I, and I really kind of, I take a lot from those um, that you, you know, that you picked them. I think it's very interesting.
2: Well, thank you for the compliments. Yeah. These ideas have been around for a while by a, quite a number of authors. And I I did some reading behind the um behind the book of course the what i hope my book does is takes these political ideas and wraps it into uh, one reviewer called it a um, eco adventure thriller so that you the author is hopefully engaged in the book is John Turkin to get his head cut off or not you know this is uh we got to read the next chapter well, wait, and
1: what the hell happened in the first lion tracking that like did you neutralize a lion with that stick you keep holding up <laughs> like, is that like actually did that did I hope not um yeah,
2: no, I never got to i, I it, I've spent a whole lot of time around dangerous primary predators, a lot of time in my life around polar bears. And sometimes they carry a 12 gauge. And I never have ever wanted to kill a polar bear. That was the last thing I wanted. Um, The closest I've been to a polar bear is about a little farther than that. I can't do it on the screen that far. And I still didn't pull the trigger because you really don't want to kill the polar bear, you want to respect the polar bear. So, no, we never got to um, bop the lion on the head. And conversely, the lion never got to eat me. So that part of the story came out happy.
0: So I want to I want to ask about. uh, So you've written about some polar bear encounters in some of your other books. And in particular, you uh, describe—I think it's in cold uh, oceans—your first book um, or your first uh, non-textbook book. Uh, You describe an encounter with a polar bear in which you almost shot one, and in which you were uh, surprised to be uh, surprised to be interfered with and then gratified to have been interfered with. Um, I'm curious if you could tell that story um, in light of the story you're telling here. So here you're talking about tracking a lion as a tribal endeavor uh, and you're all sort of, there's a togetherness about it. And in that situation, you and Chris, uh, your your uh, your wife at the time, was um, were sort of out on your own with a polar bear stomping across the ice. How is the situation similar and different?
2: Yeah, well, that situation a polar bear is running towards us on the ice. Now, running towards us is a fact. That's data. Charging is a assumption of intent. And because the polar bear was running towards us, I was assuming it was charging. So I grabbed my rifle. Chris assumed that it was running and just kind of didn't see us or didn't realize we were in the way. And um, it just needed to be alerted that uh, it was being a bad polar bear for running at us. And so she ran in front of the rifle and waved her hands and yelled, go away, bear. And the bear ran Ear! and ran away. Um, one of the big themes in my writing today is to that. I talk a lot about the consciousness revolution that we need to get not only through things like Trumpism, but also things like problems like climate change and water scarcity and all those other problems. And that we need a, what I call a consciousness revolution. And I understand that this is, uh, people will say, oh, you're a Pollyanna dreamer and everything, but just hold on a, hold on a second. So we go back to this lion in the bushes, okay? And the lion in the bushes, we can survive. We have survived as a species with the lion in the bushes without the rifle. That's the anthropological fact. And to do that, we had to... Build a loving, caring, reciprocal relationship with the earth. And that worked. And I know, uh, I know every once in a while a lion or a polar bear will actually kill and need a person. But you know what? I'll tell you a secret. Every once in a while, a gun will actually kill a person also. So the gun helps neutralize the lion, but also opens the uh, other Pandora's box. So if you don't have the gun, then you treat all of nature with a different relationship than if you have the gun. So our, all of our tools, the bow and arrow the atlatl the gun the atomic bomb all these things that we've built up the anthropocene that we live in all these tools are great and they work really fine but they've got us into trouble so i talk about a consciousness the revolution where did this name come from where did this word come from well i borrowed it i was at a lecture with Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb back a long time ago, a senior research fellow at Stanford, and certainly not a woo-woo guy. This is, he's a, a population biologist of the highest level. And he gave a talk and he said the current population is seven, seven and a half billion people, but from a point of view of a population biologist, The population, the sustainable population is half that, 3 billion. And then he went on in his talk. And the next morning, I was lucky enough to have coffee with him. And I said, Dr. Ehrlich, how are we going to get from 7.5 to 3.5 billion? You skipped that in your talk. And he said, we need a consciousness revolution. And I picked up on that, man. So look, so... Go back to 70,000 years ago. We had the consciousness revolution to start creating art, to thinking about things that don't exist, to be storytellers, to dancing, to music. And that's what gave us our survival. Then we had the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, the computer revolution, and now, boom, we're here. and What I'm saying is that tools, technology, iPads, guns, all that stuff, modern medicine are wonderful. You know, I'm triply vaccinated, I'm a vaxxer. Absolutely, we go for it. But it hasn't been enough and it isn't enough and it's not going to be enough. That we need this consciousness revolution. So, the metaphor of the lion, getting back to the lion or the polar bear, is that if you can face the lion without dominating the lion, then you're in a headspace where you can face nature without dominating nature. We don't need the bulldozer. We don't need... All of that stuff. Yeah, I use bulldozers too, but we don't need them. And that starts our consciousness revolution. So in my mind, Facing the Lion with the Club opened up up the door to a different way of looking at the world. I'm seeing a lot of pictures bouncing around. Yeah,
0: no, no pe- people are. I'm bringing in people for their questions, but the next question is Kate's. Great. But
1: I was just so I love this. We've had a lot of people on to talk about kind of like and like from this a similar idea. You're talking about kind of a consciousness revolution and an idea of like I would say face to face interfacing with nature and, and like minimalizing. The tools and technology, and the and 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 the reliance that is placed on tools and technology to intermediate for you,
2: right? I'm like, not. I'm not saying minimize it. We still need solar panels and all that. But what's what happens is solar panels haven't been enough.
1: Okay. And, so, but like in a direct conflict, like let's just go to like the metaphor again of like the lion or like the polar bear. Like the fear. So you actually, so let me actually try to like frame this differently. You said something really interesting when you were describing why you were angry, which I think is very, uh, uh, at the idea that you were been put out into the world to track a lion with just a stick. Right. And then you said, but I know that like anger is not a useful emotion.
2: Right. And
1: that is not going to help me in this moment and that I have to kind of like appeal to a rationality and kind of like uh, you didn't say that, but I'm like assuming that. So I'm like assuming that you meant like you have to calm yourself and like stay kind of present and like and and kind of rationally focused on like what the threat is Um, and not just have an emotional reaction of
2: anger or something.
1: Um, Is that okay so far?
2: Yeah, you're doing great. Everything I, yeah, perfect.
1: So, no, so like there's like a couple of different frameworks for thinking of that. In philosophy, I guess, like Stoics, uh, the Stoics would say something like, you're like, don't like, don't overreact to things. Approach it with this neutrality and this calmness because we should just always be calm and kind of rationally thinking. Okay, that's like a nice theory. Cognitive scientists like Daniel Kahneman would say something like, you think fast and you think slow you have an emotional reaction to something but you have the power to pull it back and have a rational response to it um and like there's like variations on this and and like across political science and everything else i'm like i'm hearing kind of some of that in what you're saying and what i think that i'm also hearing in kind of your gun versus stick analogy is like the closer those two things are together like via like the least amount of harm that you can do from having the emotional reaction, like having a gun in your hand and being angry to give you that time and space to like come to a, I'm not being dominated by this polar bear. This polar bear is just running at me. Like this polar bear just doesn't know what I am. Like coming to that is like, the more that that friction can be like, like kind of like given, is like what we need more of in the world. Is that wrong or am I am I misunderstanding?
2: No, I get you, but this is beautiful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm gonna take it one step further. You see, I agree with 100% everything you say, but now let's go one step further. We have climate change, okay? This is the lion charging out of the bushes, okay? And it's ripping down and it's charging. Now, it's not going to help us to get angry, to get mad at that tribe or this tribe or that tribe, or get mad at the fact that, oh, I'm going to have to inconvenience myself by buying a electric solar panel or something like that. So as soon as that anger emotion comes up, I'm in a bad situation, so I'm going to get angry. As an adventurer, I'm giving a workshop tomorrow to take the headspace of an adventurer. So we evolved, evolution trained us to survive. Not trained us, but through the process of uh, natural selection, evolution selects survival. And having children and having those children be able to go on to the next generation. It does not select for being happy or groovy or enlightened or anything else like that. It absolutely does not. If you're nasty and you survive, your DNA is on the right track. Boom. So you ask. No,
1: it's like, it's a wonderful point. Like it's absolutely true. We are going to live a long time and likely be miserable as it's looking right now.
2: (laughs) But you see, the thing is altruism, love, kindness, sacrifice did evolve also. Okay, that's a fact. And what... I'm going to do in my workshop that I'm working on tomorrow is take the mindset of an adventurer. So you're on a rock wall, you're climbing a rock wall and um, you're leading a, a difficult pitch and your partner convinced you way back then not to take a number two cam, which is a device for protecting yourself. And you're up there and you really need a number two cam and you could fall off and get hurt anger no and you learn very soon as an adventure to stay alive you
1: i mean don't even like you don't even need to have adventurer like i just like with my partner i'm like you didn't anticipate that i would want to use that milk and you put it away (laughs) in the fridge (laughs) like why
2: (laughs) like right
1: why like okay (laughs) Okay, let's simplify it to the milk (laughs) in your fridge. But But no, but I'm saying like I don't get mad about things like that anymore. Like I just don't. Like I just don't get mad about things like that ever. I'm like, you didn't mean to do this. You can't read my mind. Why would I expect you to? Like, you weren't. You, you know, you made a mistake. I make mistakes. These are mistakes that we all make. Like that type of empathy is like takes you a long way.
2: Okay. But there are some people that do not act that way. There are some people that are angry at other people because of climate change. There are some people that get angry. And somehow we have to diffuse that. And that's what you learn as an adventurer. That's what you learn when you're tracking a lion with a stick. And that's what I talk about in the book. That's what the consciousness revolution is about. And that's what gave us our survival in hard times. And we are in hard times now. And we need the exact same consciousness revolution that we had 70,000 years ago. That's all we need.
0: Okay. Uh, it's a big ask, though. We, you know, we need a once every thousand, seventy thousand year, uh, once every seventy thousand year consciousness revolution. Uh, but that's all we need. Oh, um,
1: you're so about, you're talking about like a, you're talking about becoming more in touch with like with the feelings in your body and like how they actually like the emotions and how they impact your body and, no, no, and all, I, I mean, all these things. But, like anyway, I
0: am total. I'm totally for it. I'm trying to define it a little bit more precisely. So John, the first time I ever saw a gun in somebody's house was in your house. Uh, And specifically hanging on the door of your bathroom in the house in, in Darby, Montana, there was a large hunting rifle. And I went in there and peed and turned around to open the door and was staring a gun in the face. And I have to say, it completely changed my understanding of what guns Why? were. Why? Because, well, because John Turk is not a violent person. He's not part of a gun culture. He's not, you oh, know... That, oh, I, an, I
1: understand. Like you look, thought of guns before this moment as like a violent like not as well. Like I mean, like I had I had
0: shot twenty two rifles as a as a younger child at camp, and so I had some experience with guns. But I, I I didn't think I thought of like having guns in your house as a reflection of a cultural identity and a tribal kind of thing. And you know, um, and you know, you do a certain amount of subsistence hunting, um, for which one needs a rifle. And so my question is, is your gun closer to the gun you're talking about now? Or is it closer to the wooden uh, Rungul uh, uh, that you're holding in your hand? Where does it fall on that list, on that tool spectrum that you're describing?
2: Yeah, thank you. (laughs) You have a unique perspective. You've been in my bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, note that he's not denying the central point here no i'm not denying nothing (laughs) yeah i i i have rifles i have very good rifles beautiful rifle with a good scope i fly around on airplanes i have cars i have a computer i have all that stuff i use all the not all the but a lot of the technology that's available to us uh, my wife and I, for not years, but decades, have obtained much of our food from our surroundings, our ecosystem around us. So I shoot deer and elk, and my wife raises a garden. And um, in years past, we a very high percentage of the food that we eat every year came from our own efforts. And that's the way it is. But I'm not a person who believes that you should be able to carry an AK 47 to a demonstration uh, where there's uh, differences of opinion, and you should carry the gun. And when I was in Africa, when there are guys with guns out there who wanted to shoot me, I found it quite disconcerting. So what's the point here? The point is that our technology, we just said this, our technology is wonderful. I've been vaccinated three times, I say again, and our technology will help us get out of the mess that we're in, but our technology alone will not get us out of the mess we're in. We need our brain to use their technology and use it wisely and that's what I'm trying to say. Did that answer? All right. Let,
0: yeah, very much so. I, I think it's I think it's a um, it's it's the point that separates you from a lot of less less nimble, angrier minds on this subject. Christopher, the floor is Chris- yours.
3: Good evening, John. It's a it's a pleasure and honor to uh, talk with you. Um, so you're you're uh, you had a predecessor in adventure uh, adventurism, George Mallory, who supposedly, uh said when asked why do you want to climb Mount Everest, he said answered because it's there. Um, and he may have may or not have been the first person to climb Mount Everest. You know, people still still debate whether he made it out. He died on the mountain. Um, I looked at your bio, and you had mentioned uh, that you have numerous first ski, de- ski descents of, of some mountains. And I, I wanted to ask you, in in light of uh, during the pandemic, a lot of the the, the, the ski areas were closed. Uh, the a lot, of, a lot of skiers got into uh, backcountry or ski, ski touring. You know, go, going out on a on a mountain with Without uh, it being patrolled and without guides and uh, s- safety stuff. So, in 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 your in your calculus on which mountains to to, to do first first speed descents, what what, what kind of factors w- went into that? And I was I'm I'm especially interested in the in environmental and ecological impacts uh, assessments. Uh, you know, there's a, there's there's a lot of tall mountains that are considered sacred mountains by indigenous tribes or people who, who live around there. So what is sort of like the, the calculus in sort of being the first person to uh, make a speed ascent of a potentially dangerous mountain? And to, to, what, to, what, uh, to what extent did you have like an environmental impact studies that influenced which mountains you would attempt because they're there to use Ma- Ma- Mallory's phrase, and which ones you would just simply a- avoid being the great. first.
2: Great, thank you for that, Christopher. First of all, um, I personally disagree with Mallory. Um, you climb a first, you climb a mountain or do a first ski descent, not to conquer the mountain, but to deal with a relationship inside yourself. To me, it's an inner game, not an outer game. So when you are climbing something or skiing something or doing something that is never done before, you are entering an unknown and you are relying on yourself in a way that you don't have to rely on yourself if there's a guidebook. And as for sacred mountains, man, there's lots of sacred mountains and I totally respect Uh, Indigenous people, I totally respect religious people. If they have a sacred mountain, it's a sacred mountain. Uh, Peace be with you, bro. And I'm not gonna interfere on that at all, ever. But um, there are lots of mountains that are still left for adventuring. And climbing up and skiing down a mountain does not harm the environment. It's It's a game inside your own self. Yeah.
0: Inamar, the floor is yours.
3: Hi. Uh, So you uh, were talking about the, uh, I need to remind myself about the question, about the,
2: uh, right, about art
3: and dance uh, causing us to thrive. And I was curious why you believe that art and dance caused us to thrive rather than us thriving, giving us the resources to develop art and dance.
2: Well, it's just the, uh, it's not what I believe. It's the data that the, the big brain, our, our brain evolved over a period of 5 million years. And the big brain is a very expensive, the brain is a very expensive metabolic organ. It uses five times the calories per gram of tissue that a muscle uses. So, if you are going to, if evolution is going to select for a big brain, the big brain has to provide an evolutionary advantage in that generation. Not, you don't grow a big brain so that a million years from now you're going to build a rocket ship. Evolution, natural selection doesn't work that way. So,
1: or develop, or develop, or develop like, domestic animals or develop like or develop domestic agriculture techniques, which took took a long period of time. Just I think to his point also, which is just that like those resources allowed for the growth of some of these things. But those were much longer in being they couldn't be generational.
2: Absolutely correct. So the big brain was growing. Our brains were growing for a few million years before we developed sophisticated tools and weaponry, we had very simple tools, but not sophisticated tools. So it's an absolute fact that our big brain evolved before sophisticated tools. And back to that transition at 70,000 years ago, what we see in the anthropological record is art. And we don't see sophisticated uh, napped arrowheads until later. So it's not what I believe, it's what is in the anthropological record. And that's wonderful. That's so wondrous to know that every time the school board tries to cut the art budget because we should be learning the reading, writing, and arithmetic, tell them, hey guys, you're on the wrong track because you're missing out on the key point.
0: All right, Uh, Ev who cannot come on screen asks uh, I think a key question that everybody's thinking about. Is one born a John Turk or rather, does one become a John Turk? Was there a moment when you were a boring, normal human being and then decided you'd become someone who neutralizes lions with a stick?
2: I, I don't think you decide to become a person who will chase a lion with a stick. I think you're born, or you're born that. They tell me, my parents tell me, I don't remember this, we grew up in Brooklyn Apparently there was a uh, vacant lot and my mother tells me or told me that as soon as I could walk, I I would run away and they would go to the vacant lot and I would be walking through the tall weeds and the weeds were higher than me and they would see the weeds waving and they'd know that's where I was. And um, I don't remember this, but somewhere in my, brain, I, uh, as this little toddler, I wanted to be in those weeds, wandering around, not knowing where I was and having an adventure. So I think I was born that way. Some of us
1: are still in the weeds, John. (laughs) What's that? (laughs) I said, some of us are still in the weeds.
2: Well, good. Well, hopefully we're all in the weeds a little bit because uh, being in the know doesn't help us very much. (laughs) Auntie,
0: the floor is yours.
2: Thanks, Ben. So uh, Mr. Turk, uh, did you teach survival skills or uh, hunting uh, to Ben? I don't teach survival skills. Um, Yeah, I I certainly don't teach hunting. I quit hunting last year. I've been hunting for 40 years and I quit hunting. Um, We had an elk and its baby spend the summer in our front yard and watching the love between the the mama and the baby elk, I just went, I can't hunt again. So i quit hunting. Uh, teaching survival skills. Um, yeah, I I had a course I was supposed to teach it and I was supposed to teach winter camping survival. And I looked at the people and I said, well, don't get wet and don't do anything stupid. And then I didn't know what to say anymore, you know, but, you know, if you come to my house, I mean, we live this way. We live in the woods. We live in the deep woods and, um, you know, you come to my house and we uh, go for a walk and it's kind of handy to know how to get home again after you go for a walk. So you look around and this is your basic survival. So you pay attention. And survival skills is a lot of uh, paying attention. I mean, I can teach you how to do this, that, or the other thing. But um, what's important is just being aware, not telling stories in your head. When you're out there, you be there. And it drives me absolutely nuts. You go for a hike with somebody and you're talking all day long. Um, We were skiing someplace and you know I'm a backcountry skier in answer to the question before and I ski avalanche slopes all the time and we were climbing up and some woman, it didn't have to be a woman some person was talking and uh, and she was yak 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 and and my friend Luke said and Luke is my, my dear friend who was a professional bull rider before he became a backcountry skier and he said why don't you just shut up Don't you know two things? One is John is half deaf and he doesn't hear you anyway. And the other, he doesn't want to talk to you. He's listening to the snow. He's talking to the snow. So just shut up. And I wouldn't have said it that way. But if we go to survival school, that's what I'll tell you. Tell me. uh,
0: uh, you talk about this a little bit in the book. um, But what does it mean to talk to the snow?
2: Oh, (laughs)
0: I mean, well, there's a discussion. There's a discussion of it in the book. Uh, for those of you who don't know, backcountry skiing can be super dangerous. Um, uh, what does it mean to talk to snow?
2: Yeah. Okay. Look what we got here. Staying alive in avalanche terrain. Well, the, first of all, the snow will talk to you, and this is measurable with a decibel meter. What's important to stay alive in avalanche terrain, that's crazy that you have that book right there, is not to know what's happening on the surface of the snow, but what's happening underneath the snow, 30 centimeters, 50 centimeters, one meters under the snow. And how do you know what's happening under the snow? Well, the snow will talk to you. It makes sounds, subtle sounds. And like that. If the snow does that, the snow is talking to you. Now, when I say talk back to the snow, there's a bit of a hyperbole in there. I know the snow doesn't have ears and consciousness in the same way that a lion or a a person has ears and consciousness. But when I say talk to the snow, it's opening up a reciprocal communication with nature and treating nature as a sentient, alive organism. And once you start with that, this is Mother Earth. You don't throw garbage on your mother's head because she's your mother, you know, you love her. And so when I say talk to rocks, talk to Snow, that's the first step. Snow, good morning. How are you this morning? What do you have to tell me? That will help me stay alive today. What happened to you last night, Mr. Snow? Was it cold? Did that cold change the crystal structure of your snow? And once you start talking to snow, rather than talking to your neighbor about uh, blah, 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 the last Facebook post, post, once you start talking to the snow, then you listen to the answer. And the answer tells you how to stay alive
0: uh auntie here's my answer to the question that you posed uh john taught me skills uh without ever really knowing he was doing it i know certain things that i like well first of all i mean he certainly probably remembers he taught me how to ski um uh but i um, there are things i know about like that i would not have like all kinds of things that i would not have known otherwise for example that in certain parts of the west when you step over a log you look before you do it i didn't know that um uh but you know just a sort of baseline rattlesnake awareness uh that you don't learn growing up in urban areas in the in the east coast and um there's about a hundred things like that that just you know from uh like hanging out with him over time. I paddle a kayak differently than I did uh, as a kid, just from watching how he paddles. He's paddled a kayak across the Pacific ocean. When you, when you kayak with him, you watch what he's doing with his hands and shoulders. And he doesn't even know you're watching it, but you do end up uh, learning how I'm, I'm, you know, much younger than him. And he, The efficiency, the last time we kayaked together, which was in Connecticut, just to get some exercise, the unbelievable efficiency difference in our paddling was such that I was was probably in my mid-40s or something. And, you know, he's like, you know, in his 70s and, you know, one stroke from him goes farther than a stroke from me. So you just, you know, like, you just like, how's he doing that? And you learn things from watching.
1: John, yeah. my the reason we have this is my my partner is a backcountry skier and he also is a kayaker and was a safety kayaker for whitewater rafting in Browns Canyon and um, for a long time, um, but we but uh, we did a trip to a really doofy trip together on the North Fork um, down from the Canadian border along the edge of glacier. A couple. Oh, of years that's ago. a beautiful run. It was a beautiful run in a canoe and we yeah, loved yeah, it. Yeah, yeah it was just world. it was gorgeous. So,
2: yeah, it was really great.
1: Matt Clifford,
0: you get the last question today. And
2: then I and then I want one moment after the last question to Yeah. <laughs> oh ahead. yeah,
0: sure. And so, yeah, John, I was listening to your opening um story about being out and a large predator has killed the local livestock and you're out there Tracking it down and figuring out what to do about this, do you kill the line? You know, what 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 action does the community take? And I, was like this has got to be a situation that's familiar to a long time Montana, right? Where you've got wolves out there, where it's not uncommon at all. You know, in the past several decades, for, for wolves to kill local ranchers' livestock, it's a big, large issue. And you know, I, I think it's reacted to different
3: ways depending on who
0: the landowner is in different parts of the state. But I'm wondering if you have any experience with that directly living in Montana. And if so, you could kind of compare and contrast how communities deal with it in Kenya versus how they deal with it in Montana. Like, are there similarities or they there not, um, anything uh, about that?
2: The wolf question. Yeah. That's what you're asking. Yeah. I mean, wolves are like lions. Wolves kill livestock. Um, wolves are just wondrous creatures. And we want to create an environment where we and the wolves both both survive and both thrive. And part of that is that um, wolf conservation people are paying ranchers for the situations where wolves do kill livestock. And part of it is opening up the wild spaces leaving uh corridors of movement, so the wolves don't have to come in they aren't squeezed in we have to give the, the wolves a chance give them some space give them corridors under or over freeways so they can move so they can move to new hunting grounds so it's it's part no matter what happens, there's always going to be a wolf that's going to kill a lamb. I got that. And you have dogs that protect the, the sheep and you have ways and fencing and blah, blah, blah. But it's always going to happen. So you, out of the communal good, you pay the ranchers. But it's also about creating habitat. The greatest thing that destroys animals is loss of habitat. Is creating and allowing habitat for the wolves to go off in the wool in the woods and be wolves, and that will really alleviate the situation.
0: And how I, I think the part of the question Matt was trying to get to is how similar or different is that from the problem you were dealing with with lions in in Kenya? Uh, is it? It sounds like it's basically the same problem. No,
1: no, I think it's actually, well, sorry. I actually, maybe I'm wrong, but I took Matt's question to kind of be about like, do like this vigilante kind of like, let's go find the lion. Is that the same type of thing that you see with wolves? Like in Montana?
2: Well, yeah, there's, there's angry people out there that want to kill. High end predators, people who want to kill high end predators so that they can uh, stuff them and hang them on the wall. But yeah, the answer is the answer to your question, it's very similar. You know, the lions are being squeezed out of their habitat by habitat destruction, by farming, by cities, by roads. And what we were ostensibly trying to do, the theory that we, when I went there, but somehow it never really happened is that you have a lion that kills a cow. So you track that lion and you dart it and you radio collar it. And then you get a warrior to become responsible for that lion. In the old days, a rite of passage was to kill a lion with a spear. A little bit more sophisticated than the Rungu, but if you wanted to win a bride, if you wanted to convince a, a father to give her your daughter, you had to kill a lion with a spear. So now what we're, what lion conservation people are doing is saying, radio call the lion and make one person responsible for that lion. And when that lion gets close to the cattle it's close to the herd, that person is alerted because he knows the position and goes after the lion and starts throwing clogs of dirt at it or doing whatever. And after a while, that lion will get to know you, will get to know that person. And after a while, and this has actually been tried and proven in Africa, that you can get a relationship between a warrior and a lion And that will keep the lion eating zebras and wildebeest and not eating every time
1: it sees the, yeah. So like, just to, okay. I'm sorry to like do this apologies, but like this is super interesting to me because there's a lot of studies on cattle and cattle, especially in the U S because they're just like grown in such huge numbers. Um, And they're, 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 it's like, it's like this huge industrial good. Um, But like, And wolves threaten that. And so this is really interesting to me because like the, what you described before was that like wolf conservation, uh, wolf conservation programs are paying, like basically the idea of habitat can't be constrained. If you're going to put what like wolves in Glacier National Park, they're not going to just stay. They don't understand boundaries. They're not going to stay in Glacier National Park. They're going to also find like cattle and there's going to be externalities to like them existing. Um, and so wolf conservation people pay cattle farmers for those externalities when they happen. Um, and that's like a very economics solution to the problem and seems both like fine, but I'm wondering how that plugs into the idea of like a consciousness mind of like, it seems so much more, it seems so much closer the solution you just described with lions and radio collars and technology of one person assigned to one lion and having almost a relationship with that lion as kind of a dispute resolution mechanism, as opposed to just paying for the harm after it happens. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I hadn't thought of this before because uh, somehow I hadn't put the wolf problem and the lion problem together, but I think it would be a wonderful program um To, if you have a wolf that has been identified as a livestock killer, to do this, radio collar it and get one active person to go build a relationship with that wolf. That would be wonderful. Wouldn't and that, that person, be amazing? It would be amazing. I would do it in a heartbeat. I and bet a lot of people your- would you jump in your car and you go chase that wolf down. I mean, wolves are dogs. And I've had some really close relationships with wolves in my travels and you treat it like a dog and you go no, you got to go away, you know, and uh, this is bad and go go into the woods. And I this is a consciousness revolution we this is exactly what we have to start doing. We have to start Building our friendship with this wolf and ending up with a better world for both the cows, the people, and the wolves. So yeah, let's do it.
1: Yeah, let's do (laughs) it. I'll come to Montana and live for two years and just like radio collar wolves and follow them around. You don't have to convince me. I'll come do do it it. with you. (laughs) All right,
0: we have to wrap, but John has claimed a point of personal privilege, which we are going to honor. So, John, the floor is yours.
2: I'm going to hold up my book upside down. Hang on, hold, my, wait, wait, get your
0: face, get your face in there. Wait, wait, hold on, because we're <laughs> okay. There right. we go. There, there it is. There it is. Here we go. All right, I'm going and to, uh, don't, don't go you. away yet. Moving it a little bit
2: towards your face. Good. We got it. Oh, and really um, just encourage you to uh, try this book out. I think it's a great read and uh, you'll enjoy it. And uh, write me an email at john at johnturk.net and let's have a dialogue.
0: All right. I'm putting the email in the chat. Um, the book is out. It is available. You should all buy it. John, you're a great American, great citizen of the world. You're, 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 you've been called a bad traveler in other worlds, but a great traveler in this world. Um, I can't speak to the former point, but the latter point is certainly correct. Um, and uh, I love you very much. And it's great to see your face. Um, we will be back on Monday a bunch of hours and 55 minutes from now, do we know who the guest is going to be, KK?
1: No, but we do have, like, we have, a, we have, um, we have someone that's coming in. Any, oh, we have Shane Harris on Thursday, so that's something to look forward to. And we have Aaron Pris- Prz... Przanowski, who is a property and IP lawyer, speaking about the right to repair your own goods and to be able to fix your own stuff.
0: Uh, so yeah, a, a thing very much under challenge these days by companies that pretend that the things that they sell you are, are nearly comparable. licensed.
1: Right, exactly. Um, so it's, it's, it's like uh, tremendous. No, I like as a person, you think like,
0: you own that phone, but you don't. Yeah, you so nearly he, have licensed the right he, to use he's it. Also,
1: he's also the co-author of a book called "The End of Ownership," which is all about kind of like the end of like your kind of your ownership rights. So, so, anyways, he will be awesome. I really do promise that he is going to be great. So,
0: all right, we are. Uh, that's it for us. We are gone uh, for the weekend, Kate. Until we're back, we don't
1: Bye. have fun anymore, but we have sticks. <laughs> And we have lions, and we can like
0: neutralize.
3: Do that. Yeah. All right. Do that, people. We'll see you Monday.
1: run you were awesome. Nice.